Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We get closer and closer to that final day of voting in the 2022 midterms next uh, Tuesday, uh, November 8th. So a lot to talk about on the show today is campaigning uh, winds toward a conclusion. Let's get right to the panel. Greg Bluestein joins me as he does every Wednesday. He's the political reporter, one of the political reporters for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, since this is the last time we'll talk to you on this show before the weekend, uh, I want to know how you plan to be at the the Georgia-Tennessee game. I know you're going. And also, while you're there, file eight stories about the <laughs> campaigns as they wind down. <laughs> well, it's all planning. And we also expect the candidates, at least some of them, to be there. Herschel Walker, in fact, is holding an 11 a.m. rally at the Classic Center in downtown Athens just a few hours before the biggest game in Sanford Stadium history, number one versus number two. We can't wait. Yeah, what an excuse. Herschel Walker will be there, so I'll, I'll be at the game. I'm glad you're here today, Greg. Thank you so much. Maya King, a politics reporter for the New York Times who covers the South uh, for the Times and is based here in Atlanta. Maya, how are you today? I'm hanging in there, Bill. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And um, we're really glad to welcome back as well Chuck Williams, uh, who has been a legendary reporter down there in Columbus and uh, the uh, territory around Columbus for many years as the turn from print to TV and is now a reporter at WRBL Television in Columbus. Hi, Chuck. How are things down your way? Things are really good down here. My football situation is not near as good as Greg's. I'm an Auburn fan, so I don't even have a coach this morning. <laughs> okay, well, I'm very sorry about that. Let's start, Greg. We do need to start with a remarkable uh, uh, figure. It appears that by midday today, we will have seen two million Georgians cast early ballots in this election. That is astonishing and tells us an awful lot about the uh, enthusiasm, the passion that Georgians are feeling about uh, getting out and making their voices heard. It really does. And remember, Friday is usually the busiest day of early voting, so we're not even close to the uh, to seeing the full effect of early voting. And odds are more than half the electorate, more than half of, of folks who will vote have already cast their ballots. So it scrambles everything. It scrambles, you know, even media coverage in a sense, right? Uh, debates have to be held earlier. Stories have to, you know, about bios and issues have to run earlier because so many people make up their minds early. And it also scrambles how the campaigns uh, strategize, right? Uh, right now, they're looking at some of their lowest hanging fruit, making sure that, that likely Democratic voters and the most likely Republican voters have already cast ballots. Once they do that, they can shift resources to voters who don't vote as often. And they can start targeting them more and more and more. Um, Maya, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the, the uh, demographics of the, the voters who have come out early, but we do know and have talked about frequently on the show the fact that um, the Abrams campaign is counting on having and, and needs based on past records of voting in the state about 30 percent black turnout to uh, and, and needs to capture a good 90 percent of that vote if they hope to win. Um, it looks to me like black turnout has now dipped to 29%. Um, women voters are still about 10 or 11 points ahead of men. That may be a good sign for uh, Abrams. We don't know. How do, do, you, do you make anything of that kind of data, or are we just looking for something to talk about when we're not going to know anything until Election Day? Well, if you're, if you're you know— on Team Abrams, and you're looking at the groups that you need to win, I think that's right to pay close attention to Black voters and to women. The people that I've talked to in Abrams' orbit have pointed to both of those demographics, saying we need well over 30 percent of Black voters to turn out, and we need for women to overperform, particularly in Atlanta suburbs. 
So I think there's a little bit of work to do looking at these demographic performances at this stage. But we know that Election Day turnout is probably going to add to a lot of this. Um, older black voters have been extremely um, influential, I think, and, and have turned out in really high numbers in the first two weeks of early voting. I imagine we'll see more black voters turn out on Election Day. And I'm also looking really closely at this number, not just for Abrams, but really for the entire election of how women yeah. turn out and whether abortion yep. really is this, 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 the issue that is going to decide this race. Absolutely. Um, Chuck, the Abrams campaign is fighting hard uh, uh, in the face of polling by the AJC just this week, by other polling organizations that have got shown Brian Kemp a little bit over 50 percent and Abrams lagging behind by an average of about seven points. But they insist that um, that to uh, uh, count her out right now is a mistake. And th- partly that's because of what we just heard from Maya about their expectations of their voters turning out in bigger numbers. I'd agree with that, Bill. We're going to have uh, next star, the Hill Emerson College, will drop a poll that was just recently done tomorrow. It'll be dropped tomorrow. So we'll get one last look. We'll see if it supports what the AJC poll shows. So I'm really, really curious to see those Emerson numbers. The Emerson numbers have been pretty good in the past. So we'll we'll have a look at that. You know, I was in Munin with Governor Kemp on Monday, did a Zoom interview with uh, with Abrams yesterday. And I posed the question to both of them. And they sort of answered it, but sort of didn't. Um, I said, with more than 1.5 million, now 2 million people early voting, is what's going to happen, has it already happened? Is it in the machines? Is it done? Does everything that happens between now and 7 p.m. on November 8th just reinforce what's already happened, what's already in the in in the in the suit, so to speak, and you know, and you know, Kemp says that some of it's probably baked in, but he thinks there's still undecided voters out there. He's working hard, hard for it. And Abrams went back and said last week, heavy black male turnout. She said she thought that was a a benefit for her campaign. So you know, I mean, I don't know is. Is what's going to happen? Has it already happened? I mean, that's just keeps popping in my head right now. Um, I do, as a side note, want to say that uh, over a period of four years, my wife and I put a lot of money into tuition for our daughter to attend Emerson College, and we're very proud of the fact that they now have an A rating from 538 for their polling. So I'll look forward to seeing that uh, poll coming out tomorrow, Chuck. Greg Bluestein, uh, so here's an interesting question based on what Chuck just said. Um if it's already baked in, um, if most of Georgia has already decided, and the number of undecided suggests that many people have, and let's talk first about the governor's race. Um, it's interesting that um, the AJC reported on the latest fundraising totals yesterday, and both Kemp and Abrams are continuing to be money machines over the course of the entire uh, campaign of both candidates. They've raised a total of $165 million. Kemp alone has raised $69 million. Abrams, $97 million. million. And they're still bringing in almost close to double digits in millions of dollars in the final reporting period. What is that money going for at this point? <laughs> well, it's still going for TV ads, although Stacey Abrams has cut back her TV ad spending uh, fairly dramatically shifting more to digital, as her campaign manager said. It's also going to the get out the vote machinery that's so important right now. As Chuck was just saying, we we see these demographics. We see millions, you know, odds are millions of voters will vote early. Um, And and that could be part of a long-term voting pattern change. More and more voters, especially after the pandemic, after 2020, might just be voting early now. It's a part of a behavioral change. Um, But these these campaigns are really trying to rev up that that get-out-of-the-vote machinery because Republicans are still relying on a tremendous surge of votes on Election Day. More of their voters tend to vote on Election Day um, than Democratic voters, although, again, the, the encouraging numbers for Republicans right now in these early vote totals is that the single largest age group demographic that has voted early or 65 and o- older, 
39% or so um, of 65 and older voters have cast ballots. Um, and so that's a very good sign for Republicans who tend to have, you know, tend, to, tend to do much better with older Georgia voters. But with this tremendous fundraising growth, I was talking to State Senator Jen Jordan after a Democratic event last night. She's had a tremendous fundraising haul, too, for a down-ticket candidate, millions of dollars. But it's kind of just getting buried in these stories because the governor's race, the Senate race, they're raising astronomical figures. More than three times uh, more money has been raised in this governor's race than 2018, which, by the way, set all sorts of records four years ago. So, Maya, um, let's let, let's talk just for a minute about uh, the efforts to what we call GOTV, get out the vote efforts. Um, we know that one of the secrets to Stacey Abrams' past success, what brought her uh, so close to Brian Kemp in 2018, and then, of course, uh, elected Joe Biden and two Democratic senators in the 2020 cycle, was her um, extraordinary organization's ability to turn out voters. Georgia Republicans believe that this year they've caught on and they have figured out how to do the same thing. What's your sense of that? Yeah, I was with uh, with Brian Kemp yesterday in coming, and he mentioned the fact that he felt like Republicans were lagging behind Democrats four years ago or two years ago in their ground game specifically. His campaign has, has invested some of its own money um, into uh, actually working or excuse me, turning out Republican voters. You see people like Kelly Leffler also trying to invest in a ground game strategy. I think what's happening here is that Republicans have picked up one on Georgia's changing demographics and that they know they have to work harder to get into different communities, particularly black, Latino and Asian communities. And two, they know that that costs a lot of money and requires a lot more manpower maybe than it did four years ago. And so it's a it's a mix of, of data that I think the Abrams campaign had really done a great job of, of identifying the numbers and two, just being able to get, um, I think, the, the manpower enough to actually turn out a lot of these voters. Um, and that's another interesting question that's, I think, looming over this race is really who wins the grassroots wars. Yeah. Maya, while the ball's in your court, talk to us a little bit about the event you covered yesterday, because this was the rally that former Vice President Mike Pence attended with Kemp. Give, just give us a sense of what happened there. What you, I know you reported on it for the Times, so talk to us about it. Well, it feels right now like Republicans have an understanding that they, are, uh, that they have the upper hand going into Election Day on this governor's race. And so in Pence, you have someone who is a very recognizable Republican figure, also someone who, like Governor Kemp, uh, has kind of steered clear of, of Donald Trump. Um, as Greg reported this morning, Trump was not mentioned a single time during this rally. We had a lot of Republican faithful who were just there to really see the governor and see Brian Kemp. You know, Trump is no longer the poll. It was outside of a, of a cigar um, a cigar store in downtown Cumming, Georgia, which is about an hour outside of Atlanta. Um, and, you know, had all the makings of a traditional Republican rally, minus the fact that over two dozen reporters and cameras and photographers were there <laughs> to see if the governor or or if um, the former vice president would have anything, you know, kind of spicy to say. And really, neither one of them did. I don't think that Kemp in the last six months that we've covered him since the primary has strayed really that far at all from his core message to Republican voters around keeping businesses open at the height of the pandemic, around, um, you know, keeping crime off the streets, his, his uh, anti-gang task force. And in that note, he's, he's actually gone after, I've noticed, Democrats a lot more directly in these last few weeks, sort of playing that up. And then, of course, making a more direct appeal to the people of color in these, um, these suburbs north of Atlanta. Earlier in the morning, um, the insurance commissioner, John King, candidate who was running with him, gave a stump speech in Spanish. Like all of these little things, I think, add up um, to Republicans really trying to run up the score in these last, what do we have, five days <laughs> until Election Day? Yeah, my word. Yeah, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Chuck? You know, I want to play off what Maya just said, because, you know, she said that they didn't mention Trump's name single time at the rally yesterday. Um, on Monday, I asked, you know, y'all got through a whole, whole debate on WSB Sunday night, and Trump's name was never mentioned. 
And the first words out of his mouth when he answered the question was, well, you know, the moderators just didn't go there or something like that. And I was like, okay, that's answered, asked answer. Um, but, you know, it's amazing that all of a sudden this massive Trump presence that was here during the primary was here from all the way up into the primary it's just evaporated. You don't hear people talking about it. You know, even in races where there are Trump back candidates, you don't hear people talking about it. It's almost like it's just disappeared into the ether in Georgia. It's it's, it's really interesting how that has happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating actually. Um Greg, I couldn't help but watch coverage of the uh Pence visit uh with Brian Kemp yesterday through the filter of are you ready for it? 2024. We're not even yeah. through 2022 yet. But look, here's Mike Pence, uh, likely uh, going to mount a bid to be uh, uh, the Republican nominee in 2024. Uh, people like Brian Kemp uh, can be very helpful to him if he mounts that uh, campaign. And uh, so this is a great way to make a down payment on the future, perhaps. Yeah, and I call it the revenge of the establishment. I don't know if that's the best way to, to describe those, those figures who are coming in for Governor Kemp, but, but they are the sort of, you know, the folks, the, the people who have lined up, maybe not against Trump, but at least on his bad side. You know, Governor Kemp won't say a bad word about, about Donald Trump, but of course he's incurred the former president's wrath. So is Mike Pence. So is Doug Ducey, who's coming in, the Arizona governor coming in for, for, for Brian Kemp today. So is former New Jersey governor and presidential hopeful Chris Christie, who's coming in for Governor Kemp on Thursday. They've kind of given the governor, they see in him, A, he's safe harbor. You know, he is, he is, uh, they see him as a mainline conservative who obviously, um, who might be able to show a path forward in the post-Trump era for the Republican Party. And B, you know, he's a popular figure in Georgia among Republicans who not only defeated David Perdue by 52 points, but now could be, uh, if Tuesday goes well for the governor, could be on the cusp of, of defeating, you know, an arch nemesis of the National Republican Party, someone like Stacey Abrams, who's talked about running for president. And so he, if he wins next week, will kind of go up another stratosphere. He used to always joke how he, Stacey Abrams became more famous than him in in his victory in 2018. Uh, now, 2022, if it goes well for him, could have a different story for the governor. So, okay, Greg, so you just threw a different uh, 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 take on that out, which is, who knows, Mike Pence and Brian Kemp presumably could be running against, he could be part of that field in 2024. Are you suggesting that that's where Kemp might be headed if he wins this thing? I don't think Kemp will be headed there, but I think folks will be talking about him headed there, if that makes any sense. And he'll be a sought-after no, endorsement right. for, yeah. yeah. for, for those, those folks not on Team Trump. Okay. Okay. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Maya, let me, let me turn to the Senate race if I could. Um, we've seen polling now from the AJC this week that shows us again that this race appears to be a dead heat between uh, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. And I'm, I'm wondering, if you don't mind starting, and we can talk about things much more broadly than this, I, I'm wondering if you think that this um, very dramatic on-camera interview from the second woman who has come forward to say that Herschel Walker told her to get an abortion when he got her pregnant. Um, she talked about it tearfully. She talked about the fact this happened 30 years ago, that she felt threatened by Walker when she said she didn't want to get an abortion. I I'm wondering, since the first allegation of the first woman uh, seemed to have been absorbed pretty easily by the Walker campaign, is there any reason to think that this this not it is a second accusation, but and we had that for a while. But now the women's appeared on camera. Is it going to make a difference? Well, I I don't know, um, but I am I am not sure that it will because after the first bombshell report, the immediate reaction from Republican establishment figures and grassroots-based supporters was to immediately support him and even call into question whether or not these stories were real. Now, having this woman on camera does change that, that latter question, I think, of, you know, whether or not this is just 
an anonymous person sort of spewing any anything that she can at, at Walker. And I don't want to call into question the veracity of any of these claims, but the politics of them, I'm not sure if it moves the needle because what Republicans have made perfectly clear in the last in the last two months that this saga has been going on is that they honestly have only one objective, and that is getting a Republican into that seat to be a reliable Republican vote in the Senate. Little else matters to them at this point. Chuck? I mean, this is about Team Red and Team Blue. I mean, and I think it's, I mean, my set said it. I mean, you talked to, I talked to Republicans down here, and they want that seat back. They want the seat that that Senator Warnock is sitting in back. They think it's an important piece of Republican rule, and it is, obviously. So, I mean, I can remember, and I know you can too, Bill, an era where allegations like that, I mean, I keep coming back to Gary Hart. I mean, you're done. It's over. I mean, and now, over the last seven, eight years, the psychological impact of these allegations on voters, particularly voters that are staunchly one way or the other, is just not there. And it's it's a really, it's, it's, it's interesting to watch. It really is. Greg, you know, um, I, I'd love to get your take on this, but you know, I, I do want to say Chuck points out the Gary Hart episode, which was when we really saw uh, the womanizing of a candidate play a big role in in his ability to stay in the race. I go back before that. I was on the road with Joe Biden when he was forced to drop out of the race because he had been caught plagiarizing a few comments from Neil Kinnock, uh, uh, one of the conservative leaders of parliament. Um Things have certainly changed, Greg. They've changed, but it's also the, the, the candidate itself who matters, right? So if, if, this, if this sort of allegation came out against Governor Kemp or another Republican who, who did not enter the race with personal baggage, like the, the amount we've seen with Herschel Walker, it'd be a different story, right? But in this case, even before Herschel Walker got in the race, uh, the AJC, New York Times, other outlets were already reporting on his history of violence, his history of erratic behavior, falsehoods, conspiracy theories, lies he was promoting, all these other issues. And so in a sense, you know, it, it ends up becoming basically one more piece of paper added to the pile rather than this, um, you know, this jaw-dropping allegation. And as we've seen, and we don't want to trivialize it, but we've seen on the campaign trail, it's sort of this wash, rinse, repeat cycle with there's a significant number of Republicans who don't believe any of these, these, these allegations. There's some who believe them and say he's been redeemed. Um, and there's some who believe them, in, and as both Maya and Chuck said, believe that Senate control, Republican Senate control, is their paramount concern, and they're going to hold their nose and vote for them. Chuck, quick comment before the break. You know, I did a podcast with uh, Scott Buchanan. He is a political scientist down at Georgia College and State U last night. And he thought that the ad with Coach Dooley, particularly among older voters who are not new to Georgia, was a significant moment in this campaign. And obviously, Coach, Coach Dooley's unfortunate timing of his death, but he thought there is a certain segment of the Georgia voter, the Georgia fan, that is going to sit there and look at that, and it's going to actually swing votes. And I thought that was an interesting take from Scott yesterday. Um. Well, Maya, before we get to the break, let me ask you about this. You're because you're not a longtime Georgia resident. Um, you've come in. Um, you're now uh, 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 settled here. But so when you see a, a Vince Dooley in, in the end, I get with your political reporting brain, you understand the importance of it. But I'm curious about you as a person when you think about the heritage of Herschel Walker at at UGA. Vince Dooley coming forward. How does that strike you? Yeah, as a Georgia transplant, I am I am doing my homework to understand just how important that is. And um, I'm from Tallahassee, Florida, so I try to make the the Bobby Bowden uh, Florida State connection. And I imagine that that kind of has a similar ring. I don't want to. I'm not trying to offend any UGA people, any UGA listeners. <laughs> I'm trying to equate the two. By no means are they yeah. equal. Um, but I, I, I mean, I do understand the gravity of that. And I'll also point out that on the other, we kind of have a twofold loss here because 
Vince Dooley is such an important football giant who mentored Herschel Walker. And in the same weekend that he died, Calvin Butts, who was this major figure in the black church and a mentor to Raphael Warnock died. A little bit different because Butts was not necessarily involved in Georgia politics, didn't cut an ad for Warnock before he died. But I wonder if he had come forward and said anything. We already see a lot of black faith leaders who are coming forward to defend Raphael Warnock. Just feels like, you know, it's important to have these high profile surrogates now who are who matter not only to politics, but to culture. And I, I, I can I can see how Dooley is so significant in that way. All right. Thank you for that, Maya. Let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. We'll be back with a lot more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Uh, One quick note, today is uh, Political Rewind Newsletter Day. If you're not a subscriber, uh, it's pretty easy to become one, just go to gpb.org slash newsletters, and uh, you'll see our newsletter there. Uh, you'll get it delivered to your inbox uh, late on Wednesday afternoons. Um, so we'd love to have you uh, join us. Uh, Chuck Williams of WRBL-TV in Columbus, Mike King of the New York Times, and Greg Bluestein of the AJC uh, join us for today's show. Um we're going to probably talk more about uh, election politics in a few minutes, but let's turn just for a little while, Greg, to the fact that Senator Lindsey Graham, who, by of course, we should point out, has been in Georgia uh, enthusiastically uh, campaigning uh, next to Herschel Walker, he's basically lost his final appeal. Uh, he went the he asked the United States Supreme Court to block his subpoena to testify in front of Fonnie Willis's special grand jury. And now it appears that he will testify um, maybe as soon as November 17th, which was the date that Fonnie Willis had set, had set for him to come in. There is, though, a loophole. Uh, the Supreme Court says that he can object, he can refuse to answer questions that uh, uh, pertain to his work as a United States Senator directly. So what do you make of the fact that he's probably now going to have to testify, Greg? Well, there's a reason why Fulton County investigators have wanted him to testify for so long. They see him as on the front lines of the effort to overturn Georgia's election results. And of course, he he also um, was alleged to have called Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and urged him to find ways to, uh, to, to throw out certain ballots that might have been unfavorable to Donald Trump. And so this is all part of, of an investigation. We're, we've been talking about this for months, obviously, but we're about to start talking about it a lot more because it's taken a little bit of a pause around the midterms. There's still legal battles going, going around them, but um, it's about to rev up again after the midterm election. And we'll start hearing um, more about grand jury testimony because it's not just Lindsey Graham, but there's also ongoing efforts to uh, get um, other key figures in the Trump orbit, including Mark Meadows, his former uh, his former chief of staff testified again. All these folks were alleged to be basically the ground level of Donald Trump's effort to, to overturn Georgia's election. Yeah, that's right. We we do we do know that Fonnie Willis uh, wants to interrogate him uh, on the phone calls that that Graham made to uh, uh, Brad Raffensperger um, in the weeks before the election. Chuck, um, Fonnie Willis in her uh, brief to the courts, said that, quote, Graham discussed re-examining certain absentee ballots cast in Georgia in order to explore the possibility of a more favorable outcome to former President Donald Trump. Now, that, of course, is the prosecutor's characterization of what uh, Graham talked to Raffensperger about. Um, He will contend, as he has, that what he was doing was his due diligence as um, judiciary committee. Uh, at that point, I guess he was chair still. Um, 
uh, just trying to make sure that all the absentee voting had been done correctly in the state, Chuck. You know, I want to hear what, what, we obviously won't hear it in grand jury, but I'd like to hear what Senator Graham has to say. And, you know, particularly with the conversations with Secretary Raffensperger. And, you know, Bill, is there a more interesting figure in this whole situation than Brad Raffensperger? You know, he was going to be primaried. He was done. He, you know, he was he was persona non grata Republican events. You know, he and then all of a sudden he wins the primary. He's probably the most safe candidate on the entire ballot going to the November 8th election. And, you know, it, and I think it goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago. You're not hearing Trump's name. The people who stood up to him have walked out of this in a very favorable light. Okay. I do think, in fairness to the Democratic candidate, B. Win, we should say she doesn't believe that Raffensperger is a safe bet for re-election. But I agree with that. But if you look at the polling, he consistently the polling higher than any other Republican yeah, candidate. Absolutely, absolutely. I just want to. I just. I'm sorry, Chuck. I think I cut you off, and I certainly no, didn't no, you're mean fine. To. I just said, with, that's with all due respect to Miss Wynn. She's she has worked hard. I've seen her in Columbus. I've seen her in South Georgia. She's working very hard. So, Maya, one of the things that I think is interesting about Graham's hesitation to testify is this: we know Raffensperger has already been before the special grand jury. We know it is likely that he was questioned about the phone calls that Graham made to him in his office. And, and so they already have that on record. Graham doesn't know what Raffensperger said about those phone calls. So he puts himself in a vulnerable position if he deviates too much from what Raffensperger told the grand jury. And I think that he just is eager to put all of this behind him. I think that he, you know, didn't really know exactly what the implications of those phone calls to Raffensperger were as he was making them. And and this is me putting sort of my, my national reporter hat on. I believe that this is an he's working for an audience of one. You know, he knows that he does not mm-hmm. want to alienate the relationship that has already been pretty tenuous with the former president. And that dabbling further in what's happening with Georgia or some of Trump's biggest um, foes reside between Raffensperger and Kemp is a tricky position to put himself in. Yeah. Greg, you want to uh, final word on that? Yeah, I'll say even, even folks who aren't aligned with Donald Trump are worried about that, right? That's one reason Governor Kemp didn't want to testify before the midterm election, because he didn't want to do anything that could alienate Trump supporters, even though he might not have any reason to, to, to not want to testify. And so this is, these, there's all sorts of political calculations going on with the behind the scenes uh, fighting over testifying before that grand jury probe. Um, Greg, while uh, you've got the ball, let's move on to another uh, court decision. Uh, it involves uh, Rudolph Giuliani. Uh, we remember that Rudolph Giuliani, in his efforts to prove the contention that George's election was stolen for Joe Biden, um, called attention to an incident that was on videotape. He, in fact, brought this videotape with him to testify in the Georgia legislature that he said showed two Fulton County election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, mother and daughter, uh, feeding illegal votes uh, or pulling illegal votes out and feeding them in to the uh, uh, counting machines. Of course, it turned out that that was completely fallacious. It was a lie. And Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss captivated, I think, many and many of the viewers who watched the January 6th testimony when they came before the committee and tearfully told the stories of what it was like to be attacked by the former president of the United States, uh, by people like Rudolph Giuliani. They claimed it, they said it had really, in many ways, destroyed their lives. Well, um, Giuliani is trying to dismiss the defamation suit the two of them have filed, and a federal court said, no, this suit goes forward. Greg? Yeah, it's a 27-page opinion that said that there is ample circumstantial evidence of a civil conspiracy um, uh, to, to allow this, this lawsuit to, to move forward. And look, you know, as you mentioned, 
their lives, their reputations were trashed by these pro-Trump conspiracy theorists who said they were passing voter, you know, USB cards with votes on them. You know what they were passing? It was a ginger mint. Right? It was it was shocking testimony that we heard for the January 6th committee, and it went into detail about not just the, the what happened, what actually happened by doing that vote counting process, but also the aftermath when they were faced with death threats, when people showed up outside their mother's home, when uh, they they were afraid to go out in the public, they were afraid to go to the grocery stores. Um, so that was an important ruling that allowed uh, this this uh, defamation suit uh, to go forward. Um, just to go back to that testimony for a minute, um, Maya, it I think one of the things it throughout the January sixth committee hearings, we certainly saw a lot of elected officials, uh, campaign consultant uh, types, political professionals and others testifying. But what Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss did was put a very human face on what it means to be attacked by the former president of the United States um, without any basis for that. And I think that's why they captured our attention and and, and gained so much uh, empathy from our sympathy from us. And there are the democratic implications of simply attacking election workers, the people who who make elections possible. And in a strong, in a highly democratic county like Fulton County, a county with a large black population, I think there's a lot of different things that are swirling around this lawsuit. And it has implications not only for, like I said, you know, the way that elections work, but people's willingness to get involved in this process. All right, let's do this. Let's get the final break of Political Rewind out of the way. We'll come back with a lot more on today's show. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. One more note before we move on with the panel. I've mentioned it once before, but I I wanted to do it one final time today. Uh, Tomorrow night, um, the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival has its opening night of the fall, and I'll be there to interview um, Pulitzer Prize winner John Meacham. Uh, John has a brand new book out called And There Was Light, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle, and it's a very powerful study of how Abraham Lincoln developed a moral, ethical, and spiritual Um, basis for over the years moving from individually and personally opposing slavery to coming to the point when he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, Freeing All Slaves. Um, It's a fascinating book, and it's especially important given the politics of our time. I think there are still some tickets left. We'll post a um, link to how you can get tickets to the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival. Uh, I'd love to see some of you out there. All right, enough of that. Um, Maya, let me start with you on this. It, it didn't take more than a matter of hours after news broke that Paul Pelosi had been viciously attacked with a hammer by a man who came in looking for Nancy Pelosi, echoing those words that reverberated on January 6th, where's Nancy as the insurrectionists stormed through the Capitol. We've learned since then that he... Um, wanted to uh, hold her, uh, tie her up, uh, he hoped she was in the house, and um, kneecap her because she then have to be wheeled into uh, the house and it would show what happens when traitors like Nancy Pelosi uh, continue to spread lies about, uh, uh, their, about the democracy that we live in today. Well, what I started to say is it didn't take long for... Uh, right-wingers, conservatives, and, and some Republicans to come up with conspiracy theories of their own about this, countering uh, the allegations. Um, I, I, we can talk about, we're going to talk about it more specifically, but I find this whole thing incredibly troubling, uh, Maya. And Donald Trump joined in uh, just the other day. 
And it's a symptom of the, again, very tenuous moment in our democracy where people, instead of immediately denouncing political violence, have either stoked it further or compiled some conspiracy theories to seem to justify or just muddy the waters around it. This is a moment, especially for political leaders of all parties, to come forward and say this was wrong, this was dangerous, things like this should not happen to anyone, and definitely not to political leaders or their spouses. And yet, that was not uniformly what happened. Well, and the counter-narrative is already being spun, uh, uh, presumably, among other things, uh, to take away uh, uh, so the conservatives who have been spinning these theories about so many things about the Democrats um, have sort of plausible deniability. Oh, this wasn't about us, you know, uh, instigating uh, or, or inciting someone to want to attack the Speaker of the House. This is about the fact that there was some secret... Uh, relationship between uh, uh, Paul Pelosi and his attacker, Greg. Donald Trump, in an interview on Philadelphia radio, said there were weird things going on in that household the last couple of weeks. Probably you and I are better off not talking about it. Greg? I don't know why, I don't know if my, I don't know why political leaders can't just condemn uh, these, these atrocious acts rather than trying to use it to further divides in our nation already. And I keep going back to 2017, when um, you know, people targeted Karen Handel, who was then a Republican candidate for U.S. Congress, with, um, with suspicious powder. And po- folks from both sides of the party aisle immediately condemned that. Um, Karen Handel was in a state of, you know, of, of, of frenzy because she was legitimately concerned about her safety and her family's safety. And her entire neighborhood up in Roswell was shut down. And it was a moment where John Ossoff also paused from the campaign Trevor was Everyone was legitimately upset and, and condemned um, any sort of violence against political candidates. And now we see security officers, candidates are spending a significant amount of their campaign fundraising on security because of, of the violent threats. We only hear about a few of them, right? We only hear about a few that kind of reach the public sphere. But um, there, I, I, I know for a fact there are many, many threats against these candidates. Uh, here in Georgia and beyond, all the time they go under the radar because the candidates don't want to to elevate them, and it's just a sad state where we can't, we don't have political leaders who can just get out there and just say this is wrong. Um, Chuck, I, I want to play a portion of an ad from Mike Collins, who of course is the Republican candidate for uh, Congress in the tenth district, and you're going to hear the audio from it. And so let me describe just a little of the video here. We see Mike Collins in the woods. He's got a wheelbarrow that he's pushing forward, and slung over his shoulder is an, an automatic weapon, uh, maybe an AR-15. I don't recognize those things particularly easily. And what you're going to hear first is kind of a montage of Nancy Pelosi comments, and then you're going to hear the sound of a gunshot as Mike Collins shoots um, what he's been ha- carrying in the wheelbarrow, which is Nancy Policy's uh, Future for America, something like that. He shoots these papers, and then we hear uh, his take on all this. So let's listen and then talk about the demonization of the Speaker of the House. You're on a good path at the border under leadership of Joe Biden, President Biden. He must go. He is a clear and present danger to the nation that we all love. I'm going to Washington to stop the Pelosi agenda, and you're not going to silence me. They said build back better, but there are times I can hardly recognize the America that Democrats are trying to create. Conservatives have gotten steamrolled thanks to spineless politicians for far too long, and it's time to fight back. Chuck, Mike Collins responding. Nancy Pelosi, by the way, when she says we hear her say it's time for him to go, is talking about uh, Donald Trump. Uh, but, Chuck, this is an, also a moment to say, uh, no, this is not uh, both sides. This is primarily driven by right-wing uh, activists, conspiracy theorists, people who look to demonize, as Collins does in this ad, uh, Democrats. They're not just people with different ideas. They are evil forces. And that's exactly what you see there. And, you know, 
at some point, well, this is just the times we live in is not a good excuse or explanation for what's going on with the personal attacks. And I understand that Republicans have a lot of differences with Speaker Pelosi and her policies, no question about that. And, you know, and I'm sure the argument from the Collins camp would be, well, we were policies, not her. You know, you look at what happened in San Francisco last week with her husband, and, you know, there's there's a line there. There is a clear line there. Greg? Agree. I mean, look, we've talked about the, the, the sharpening rhetoric. We in the media play into it. I've called elections battles and fights and, you know, use that sort of brawler's rhetoric, too, in my stories. Um, you know, and, and, and it's just part of the, uh, the overall narratives of these elections. Um, but it does play into this fact, this, this, this thought, this premise that this is rather than a civil discourse and, and a thoughtful exchange of ideas and policies that instead we're in some sort of, you know, boxing match. And, and unfortunately, we in the media play into it as well. All right. Well, I, I did want to take a few minutes to talk about that. Listeners have been sending me notes saying, are we going to take this on? And um, and, and it, so I wanted to spend a little time. We'll watch uh, how things develop around Paul Pelosi. We know that the uh, the suspect in this case is being charged with multiple uh, crimes and that he said his intention was to go far beyond Speaker Pelosi. He had other targets of his uh, uh, wrath against uh, Democrats uh, who he thinks are somehow destroying the country. Um, I want to go back to politics as we get toward the end of the show because I have three uh, wonderful panelists today who are all going to be covering the final days of this election. And, and so if I can, and Chuck, let me start with you. Uh, uh, one of the things you've got is a big second district race going on down there. The one congressional district that many people feel is in play. I assume you're going to be watching that, but tell us just in general how you're going to spend your days covering politics coming up. Um, I know we have people coming in on walk. Uh, Herschel Walker's in LaGrange on Friday. Ossoff is doing a uh, parade uh, uh, canvas event with Sanford Bishop, second congressional incumbent, on Saturday. Uh, Governor Kemp is scheduled to fly in on um, Monday. I'm sure other flyings will get scheduled today or tomorrow. Um, WRB is the Elections Eve special on Monday night, so we're getting content and kind of getting that all set up. You can see it on WRBL.com. People are not in our coverage area want to see it. But, you know, they told me uh, earlier this week, they're not going to send me out on election night. I'm going to get to stay in the office and kind of, we've got three major races. Um, we've got the governor's race, the Senate race, and the second congressional race. And I asked, uh, I asked, um, Stacey Abrams yesterday about the second congressional race, and she's pushing for extended voting hours in Darty County right now. That obviously would benefit, I mean, could benefit Democratic candidates, including Sanford Bishop down there. They're closing polls earlier than some other places in the state are, so... All right, so you got a full plate. Maya King, uh, you're going to be all over the place, I suspect. Yes, I will be continuing to traverse the state, but I think the closer that we get to Election Day, the one race I'll be paying the closest attention to is this Senate race between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, just because of the implications that it has for this for control of the Senate and the messages that are getting increasingly nasty the closer that we get to Election Day here. Uh, one quick question about that. Because Herschel Walker has gotten so many of the headlines lately, especially after yesterday, in the final days of this race, is, is there a way in which that takes away from Raphael Warnock being able to get his message through the noise? Well, the thing that Warnock has to his advantage is all of this money that he's been able to just saturate the airwaves with. And I think that's really been his chosen argument or his chosen um, vehicle. And he's gotten a little bit more. I mean, he's, he's pulled less punches now in, in describing Walker, saying you actually have to know things to be able to run for the United States Senate. <laughs> I've never heard yeah. that kind of language from him before. Yeah, that's really interesting. Greg Bluestein, you, of course, will be everywhere. 
And by the way, that was that was uh, one of the one-liners for Senator Warnock at the Obama event on Friday. And I've, I've gotten to see Maya everywhere as well. We were hanging out and coming yesterday for the Mike Pence event. Um, look, we have four candidates plus a lot of down-ticket candidates that we're covering, tracking uh, in the political world at the AJC, and I know the other uh, other press is tracking them all as well. So every day we have a running Slack channel where we're trying to internally figure out who's covering what and what we can get to and what are the must-attends and what are the we, we would like to attend but don't have to attend type sort of events. And just as Maya is going to be covering a lot about the U.S. Senate, we will as well. But my focus will also be increasingly on the governor's race because as, as important as the Senate race is, for Georgia audience, the governor's race is 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 going to be the the single biggest I think race for us here in Georgia because of the implications and the influence the governor has on our daily lives. Absolutely, um, we're out of time uh, for today's show, and I just first of all want to say I'm really grateful to all three of you who are working so hard covering. Uh, the midterm elections as it comes down to the final day of voting. I'm really grateful to you for spending time with us here on Political Rewind today. Um, Chuck Williams, uh, good luck on election night. Uh, Maya King, we'll be looking for your reporting uh, throughout the next five days at the New York Times. And of course, Greg Bluestein, uh, you as well. Uh, we look forward to reading you every day. Uh, in the AJC, whether it's the uh, newspaper itself, the jolt, or all the stories you put online. We're completely out of time for today's show. Um, my thanks to uh, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, uh, Veronica uh, Evans, and um, Jake Cook for the work that they do on the show. See you all tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and go out and get your flu shot at the very least. Bye, everybody. <laughs>